Hello and welcome to the Daily Lawyer Podcast. My name is Jenna Krishnan. I am your host and also the founder of the Daily Lawyer. And uh, today is yet another episode in our Careers in the Law series, where uh, we bring incredible legal professionals to talk about what their uh, career is in the law so that you can get a better understanding of the vast variety of opportunities within the legal field. And I'm really, really excited for today's conversation because it's with somebody I uh, really admire. She's someone I know very closely. Uh, she was my first senior in the profession. I'm speaking about Farzana Bhairam Kamdin. Farzana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jenna. It's a pleasure to be here. Yay. So I want to tell everybody a little bit about you. And then after that, you can sort of tell everyone what you do. Okay. I'm going to try and condense Farzana's 30 plus years of legal experience or experience as an advocate and a solicitor into four lines. Uh, Farzana, as I already mentioned, is an advocate, a solicitor of the Bombay High Court. She has been in practice for over 30 years. And um, she does a wide variety. She's also the managing partner of FZB and Associates, which is a multi-service law firm providing services on the civil side of the law. So not just conveyancing, testamentary, property, uh, a, a wide variety of things that, that FZB and Associates does very competently for clients, not just in India, but all over the world. Um, what else? Farzana is one of my first seniors, as I already said. She's one of the kindest uh, most honest, one of the best human beings I know, and I'm so delighted to have her here so she can share her incredible insights, her vast knowledge with all of our listeners. Farzana, thank you again for being here. I'm very excited for this conversation, and I'm happy that we were finally able to sync our calendars and find a time to record this podcast. Thank you, Jenna. Okay, it's I all. I always start with the with one question, and that is, I know you've been a lawyer for a very, very long time, but uh, how did you get into the profession? Like, why did you become a lawyer? And take us through the journey of why you became a lawyer, like from the time you decided to become a lawyer, and your entire journey in the law so far. That's a very long story. I know. I started with such a difficult question. All the best. Okay, actually, it's not a very difficult question because it's a very simple answer to that. Uh, I was a student of history. I did six papers in history and I had an awesome professor who uh, taught us many of those papers. He was somebody I admired who was a lawyer, but who, for his passion for history, used to teach history. So after we appeared for our third year BA exams, we had all gone our history uh, group was a very small group of six people. Uh, we had all gone to Mableshwar for a holiday along with two professors, Professor Mahadevan, who was my history professor, and another professor uh, who was used to teach economics, but who we were very close to, Graciela. And we had all gone and we were sitting and having lunch in the Mableshwar market. And he asked me, like, what do you want to do after, now that you're finishing your BA? So I said, I'm very interested in archaeology. So he said, no, no, you cannot do archaeology. You see, archaeology in India is, you need to know Sanskrit and it's very difficult and all that. And why don't you do law? So I told him, sir, you know that uh, I really cannot stand up and speak. Even in front of our small class, I cannot stand up and speak. 
So he said, no, no, your reasoning and all that is very good. And this is what you must do. And yes, when he told me that, it was something which I was inclined to. I used to read a lot of Earl Stanley Gardner, Perry Mason and enjoy those. And of course, so I said, but I can't speak. So he said, no, you go to this Nazareth public speaking. And there is this class which is run by Mr. Nazareth and he's very good. So I joined that class and that man made a huge difference in my life. Uh, at the end of it, I was confident enough to stand up and speak before anybody. It was not never an issue thereafter. So I would say Professor Mahadevan, who today is 90 plus, eh, and who's still around and who I'm still in touch with, was my first mentor. And uh, thereafter, I think there was no looking back. I uh, went and worked with Mr. Motiwala, who was a brilliant solicitor for a very short period of time, who had an awesome memory. I worked in Pain and Company thereafter for a year. And in my second year uh, of uh, when I was about to appear for my second year exams, I got interviewed at Vadya Gandhi and Company. And I joined Vadya Gandhi. And my senior there was Mr. Anand Bhatt, who is now no more. And he was an awesome senior. He was a senior who kind of gave inspiration to his juniors to say, go, do whatever you want. I'm behind you. And from appearing to drafting to engaging with counsel directly, he would have full faith and trust in you. And he would kind of push you to do better than you could do yourself or you could imagine that you could do. So I was, thereafter I did my solicitors. I cleared the exam. Immediately the year after I passed my law. And thereafter I became a partner of Wadia Gandhi. I was a partner there for 13 years. I left them and started my own firm as a sole proprietor in 2014. Two of my own juniors became my partners. And that's how FZB and Associates has grown. And we generally do everything, as you said, on the civil side. And uh, our practice involves from civil litigation, which can be corporate litigation, individual litigation, property litigation, to testamentary litigation, to drafting of wills, to drafting of lots of trusts, advising parties on setting up trusts for their families and, you know, kind of succession planning. And uh, we do a bit of corporate documentation. We have NBFCs and banks as our clients. So we do documentation for them. And we do a lot of conveyancing. So that is basically property transactions, whether it's legal license or whether it is... Uh, Drafting of conveyance deeds and sale of properties and purchase of flats, purchase of land, title certificates, and the entire gamut which comes with property transactions. And I've had the privilege of being appointed as the president of the Bombay Incorporated Law Society. Uh, that is something law. I left out in your introduction, which I should have said that Fazara is now the president of the Bombay Incorporated Law Society. But I would think we should go a little slow because there are a lot of words in your answer that many of our listeners may not understand, like litigation, testamentary litigation, convincing, all of them. So just to simplify things, do you want to just simplify what is litigation, convincing, testamentary, and things litigation like that? Litigation is uh, basically uh, when you go to court, when there's a person who has a dispute and he files a case in court, there's a general word 
as li called litigation, which you use for all kinds of dispute-related matters, whether it's criminal or civil or corporate or whatever. So uh, I we don't do the criminal side. We have people we go to for if clients have a criminal dispute or whatever, or want to do something on the criminal side, then we normally refer to other lawyers who specialize in criminal work. So uh, that's what litigation means. Conveyancing is a general term used for all kinds of property transactions. So whether it's a sale of a flat, a sale of a... So we land, mean real estate transactions. Real estate transactions. Yeah. yeah, that's more simple to mm. understand. So, and testamentary is with regard to making wills, codices, uh, sometimes wills get challenged. So doing the litigation part of it. Yeah. And, and the probate and all yeah, that. Yeah. And so, then also succession planning and estate planning is for somebody who wants to understand how to ha how uh, their, est their property and everything that they own needs to be handled after their death. So how do they plan it in a way that is the simplest and the easiest for their next of kin? That is succession. But when you say succession planning, what you mean is high net worth individuals typically who have uh, children and may have one child, may have multiple children, want to ensure that there are no disputes after their death. Yeah. Do not want issues where after a marriage, there's a divorce and the spouse makes a claim on a large part of inheritance. Yeah. So yeah. If it comes as inheritance, it becomes part of your own property. And mm -hmm. if it becomes part of your own property, then you may land up having a claim from a spouse. So they want to ensure that they manage to keep the property within the family without uh, issues which may arise on a separation or a divorce, et cetera, et cetera. And they want to see the generations thereafter continue to benefit from the fact that there is so much property and movables, immovable, whatever it yeah. is. So then at that point in time in their lifetime, they do trust deeds. Yeah, so they are revocable trusts or irrevocable trusts or discretionary, non-discretionary. A discretionary trust is basically something where the trustee has the discretion to decide how a distribution happens mm -hmm. between the various beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. Whereas a non-discretionary trust will stipulate that amongst X, Y, Z beneficiaries, this is the manner of distribution. Each person so maybe you should just take a minute to say what's a trust because that also is a concept that's a bit not understood so when we say trust what do we mean like a trust is a separate entity you you want to just expand on that so for example if a person has say 10 lakhs of rupees and he wants to create a trust he may want to keep say 5 lakhs for himself and 5 lakhs he may want to create a trust of uh he will therefore make a trust deed he will be known as the settler he may not put the entire 5 lakhs because there's stamp duty implications when you transfer money to a trust or transfer property to a trust. So you may start with a corpus just of a 1,000 rupees. And then the settlor may keep adding to that trust once it's established. So he may start with a corpus of a 1,000 rupees, then transfer some mutual fund to the trust or buy new mutual funds directly in the name of the trust. So there's no stamp duty implications. So slowly, slowly, he may grow the corpus of the trust. Once a settlor transfers uh, things to the trust, typically a settlor will not, will provide that it will, he will have no claims on what he transfers to the trust. Of course, he has the option of saying that he can claim the trust yeah. uh, properties back. 
But the idea of succession planning is that once it's transferred to the trust, it will not go back. Uh, so he will transfer stuff to the trust piecemeal or whatever. He may also convey properties which stand in his name to the trust. If he does so, then he will pay stamp duty. Or he may, from money he has, buy property directly in the name of the trust. Now, a trust is not a legal entity. A trust is basically governed by its trustees. Hmm. So the trustees will hold properties in their own name. And the trustees may change from time to time. And when the trustees change from time to time, if there's immovable property involved, you have to do deeds of appointment of new trustees, which have to be registered. So that automatically by the fact that you have become a trustee of a trust, you become entitled to hold the properties. The property card will reflect the names of the trustees yeah. also, which have been appointed from time to time. And a trust is governed by its trustees and it can go on in for a long period of time. Yeah. It only cannot infringe the rule against perpetuity, which is basically that the last beneficiary uh, has to have been born within a period of some person must have been born within yeah. a period of 18 years from the death of the last beneficiary. Yeah. Otherwise, the trust dissolves. Yeah. And of course, you provide for when the trust will dissolve and you know what will happen and who will get the corpus, who will get the income, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So briefly, that's what a trust is. So this is this is a crash course on trusts for all those who don't know. But uh, I mean, I know that we are sort of take going on a little bit of a tangent from what we had planned to speak about but this is another reason why people must come to lawyers because there are small things that you said which lay people may not think of for instance you said you start with a smaller corpus because there are stamp duty implications and if you transfer it let's say en masse uh, then you start to lose money unnecessarily and you can plan it in a more smarter way so this is just one more reason why I, I keep saying this in all the podcasts that like people should come to lawyer at, lawyers at the more primary stage, but you just gave a beautiful example of why you should come to an expert who knows what they're doing uh, when they are planning anything of this nature because they can help you save time, money, resources, uh, plan things in a smarter way and and so on. Now, because you spoke about trusts and succession planning and, you know, I'm going to ask you uh, a logical sort of corollary from that, which is you said you do wills, uh, testamentary work, uh, probate, all of that. So tell us a little bit about your practice in that area. And what, you know, why do you really think that people need to provide for things like this, whether it is, you know, whether it is uh, plan succession planning, estate planning, uh, writing a will, because a lot of us don't do that. See, if you have a nuclear family in the sense that you are a couple and have one child, then if you don't do a will, I guess it's okay if you have things in joint names. If everything is in three names, then there is no problem. The problem arises when possibly you have more than one child. Then you may want to, even if you want to divide it equally, which most uh, personal laws would provide, except for the Muslim law, which does not provide for equal distribution. Uh, you may be okay. If you want to give things to, say, charity, you want to give to friends, you want to give to servants who may have been your employer, you know, been your, with you for 
multiple years or generations also for example then you may want to make a will where by you stipulate the things that you want to do and uh, therefore it is necessary to draft a will now people may think that a will draft is a very simple uh, situation yes broadly speaking it is very simple but there are small rules which are there in our indian succession act which apply to wills of all people so for example if an executor is a family member and a beneficiary somebody who is inheriting some property under the will you must provide that the beneficiary or that person who is your heir will be entitled to the bequest regardless of whether he proves the will or not because there is a section in the indian succession act which provides that if you are uh, an executor it is assumed that anything you are getting under the will you are getting as payment for acting as an executor and therefore if you decide that i do not want to act as an executor like a child who has moved abroad and who is unable to actually come and administer the estate then that child will be deprived of the benefits given to him under the will so therefore a clause to that effect needs to be put there are small small things like that uh i have seen wills which unfortunately do not have those clauses and then there can be issues if the executor decides to not prove the will for whatever reason just a fact of being not there in the country so that's what basically that is what it is and then you need two attesting witnesses to every will which does not need to be a spouse of a beneficiary because otherwise the attestation is valid the beneficiary does not get the bequest yeah see these are small things again why these are things that we will not know as lay people you'll probably and the most common attesting witnesses are actually your spouse or your son or daughter or somebody who lives with you in the same house so what you said is very useful i also think that it's even though i know that you didn't mean it that way when you say that if you have just one child it's okay or if you have two children it's okay if you don't write a will uh, one of the biggest reasons why you must write a will and ideally you must go to a lawyer to write a will uh, is because it just say it just makes everybody's expectations very very clear uh, and people know what they are you know you you have agency over how your property is going to go after your death everything that you have worked for so tell me after the will i know you do a lot of property related work and lot of um what exactly do you do in terms of the in, in terms of the property related uh services that the firm can provide rather or so what clearly, kind of people should come to you for that that maybe that's a better question anybody who has wants to buy property or sell property or wants to give it out and leave in life property can be land it can be uh... but why do why do you think people need to come to a lawyer because nowadays you have things like no broker which gives you these easy phone call and then they give you this templated document uh and then you know so why should why should i as a lay person really come to a lawyer and when there are easier alternatives available okay ah uh, no offense to anybody but let me put it this way the government has a standardized legal license agreement if you want to do an online registration of a legal license agreement they have a standard format 
you are not allowed to add more than a certain number of characters, which is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, around 1,000 characters, which is hardly anything. That standard format does not protect the licensor at all. It uh, does not provide... One second, I think I'm just going to interrupt to say licensor is the person who's giving the property out, like the owner Correct. of the property. Correct. So if you are a person who is the owner of your flat and you want to give it out a legal license, that agreement does not protect you at all. From a licensee's perspective, the person taking the property on legal license, it is pretty good because most protections are not there. Uh, of course, there are things which are not there in favor of the licensee also. So when clients come to us and say, you know, the broker has given us this leave and license and we are going to register it. Uh, I feel extremely scared. So most lawyers have developed a practice of saying, okay, you want to do this because you are sitting in different parts of the country. You are maybe sitting abroad. Maybe this uh, not convenient to go to the registrar's office to physically register. So then we do a complete supplementary to the formatted document which the government gives you. And we then just add one clause in the format document saying that this shall be read along with the supplemental terms in the hope that if there's ever litigation, you'll be That's able to smart. read the supplemental yeah. terms. Because the law is that if you have a registered document, then there is no reference to any other document. So we put that in. Now, if you just rely upon your broker, you may land up in big trouble going forward, especially if the licensee does not vacate and you have to go to court. So just now we had a huge litigation where uh, a licensee decided that though the license takes One sec, the licensee is the person who occupies the yes, property. He was occupying some land, etc. And he said, and he was running some services there. So he said, okay, now the license is expired in COVID time. I'm happily enjoying the place. I'm continuing to do my activities and I will not uh, vacate. And ultimately, what will the licensor do? He will renew the license for me. The licensor did not want to renew. They wanted, they had other plans for their property. So finally, we started a litigation. We filed a suit in the small causes court. And we managed to get uh, on the basis of the legal license agreement, which was very well drafted. Uh, it was not drafted by us, let me put it up front. It was something which was the litigation given to us. We managed to succeed and the licensee did not even get an order to enter the property. And wow. finally, the whole thing, he finally withdrew his appeal huh. and all that. And we managed to succeed at the interim stage, which would not have happened if it was the format legal license which had been done. Hmm. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is that the reason why any person should get a lawyer to draft his or her property documents or at least look over his or her property documents, even if they are templated by whoever, is so that you can ensure that your rights in your particular case is protected properly. And they'll be able to give you these kind of small solutions like what you said. We make a supplemental agreement to the templated agreement because there is very little scope for us to change what is in the templated agreement. 
So these are some of the solutions that a lawyer can provide or any expert can provide to you because we keep in and through uh, the daily lawyer, uh, running the daily lawyer in the last one year, we have come up with so many messages telling, you know, writing, whether it is on LinkedIn or whether it's on Instagram and giving all of these everyday situations. Like I exactly what you said, right? I had a property. There's somebody sitting on my property. I don't know what to do because they either don't have a document or they don't have a good enough document or they just didn't bother with reading. They just signed whatever was there. So I'm with you. I just wanted, uh, you know, somebody else to say this other than me because I'm the one who's saying this all the time. Uh, yeah, also, for example, if you're selling property, very often I find that clients who are selling say, Are hum to bech rahe hai. what is there? You know, we'll get our money and that's it. But very uh, most of the time, yes, the transaction will go smoothly. But there are times when uh, there will be a dishonest purchaser who will try and block the property. And if you have not carved out exceptions and timelines and made time of the essence and said things have to be done by a certain time, you will land up in a situation where he will not pay you your money and you will just be running around in circles. You will go to court. Uh, you may get an order. You may not get an order because at the ad interim stage, uh, we don't know what will be represented. Ad interim also is a very... <laughs> it's okay. a, at the immediate... At the, yeah. At, at, the at the first stage, yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is what happens when you are a lawyer, you tend to give a lot of... No, uh, I don't. Garbage, which is not yeah. understood. Yeah. This is this is one of the most common feedback that I received on the podcast. I don't understand what you're saying. I can't understand. So uh, I'm, I'm consciously trying to reduce legalese and speak in English. Very difficult for lawyers to do. I know. Anyway, uh, yeah, go on. No, so it's as simple as that. Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you have to take your protections. And when you try and do it by yourself because you're trying to save a little money, all of us love saving money, but not at the cost of having uh, a huge repercussion later. Absolutely. These are all these these lines. I'm going to take it and spray it on the so on social media because we do we do these. We pick up uh, some lines from po the podcast, uh, various podcasts, and put it as posts on social media. So this is going to be one of them. Uh, Farzana, you are the president, the current president of the Bombay Incorporated Law Society. You may want to tell everybody. First of all, congratulations! It's a it's a great honor, and I think it's very well deserved. But what is the Bombay Incorporated Law Society and why is it a big deal uh, that you are now the serving president of that? Let's put it this way. It's not a big deal being the first woman president. It is not oh, a big oh deal. Oh my God. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> see, the Bombay Incorporated Law Society was incorporated around 125 years, 128 years ago or so. Uh, it is basically a body of solicitors. It was granted a license by the then governor and council to be incorporated as a company, etc. We perform a main, the main function we perform is holding the solicitor's exam, which is now conducted only in Bombay. At one point in time, the Bombay High Court had a dual system. When I say dual system means there was a class of advocates and all solicitors are primarily first advocates. Only if you're an advocate can you do the solicitor's exam. So there was a dual system which prevailed like in the 70s sometime. 
and uh, solicitors or those who have appeared for this exam were not allowed to appear and argue matters in court. Whereas the counsels, the advocates who specialize in arguing were the ones who were allowed to appear and argue. So there was a clear distinction in the work that was done by solicitors and counsel. After the abolition of the dual system, that has gone. But uh, to a large extent, in Bombay at least, it's still practiced. So solicitors file what are called vakalat namas or authorities from clients to appear and argue matters. Uh, sorry, uh, file vakalat namas, represent them. So for example, FZB and Associates will file a vakalat nama for Jena. Uh, it's essentially a permission that I give you as a litigant that you go yes. and represent me in court. Correct. And in turn, I will possibly engage. Sometimes I will appear and argue myself. But in complicated matters or in matters which are very high stake, client himself may want a counsel who specializes in arguing to appear. In which case, I, as FZB and Associates, will engage a counsel or multiple counsels. Sometimes there are many councils who are briefed in a matter. And the council will only deal with the client when I am present. He will not deal directly through uh, with the client directly. Yeah. So we are the ones who, at least in my firm, we are the ones who do our drafting. We do everything in-house. In if a matter is very complicated, we'll give it to a council to settle the draft or whatever the proceeding we are filing, the affidavit or the plaint or the suit or the written statement or whatever. Uh, it is, the council will settle it and then the council will appear, but we will attend all conferences. We will be the ones giving instructions to the council. We'll be the ones discussing strategy with council. And that is the role that a solicitor plays. It is the client who will come to the solicitor, say, I want to put this, that, and the other inside the affidavit. So we are the ones who collect the information. We translate it onto paper, and then we go and brief counsel. Uh, so basically, for doing the solicitor's exam, the student needs to a student with a law student. If he's in the five-year course after the, I think the third year. Uh, no, after the second third. year. He can join, he can sign articles. Second? No, after the third, third. Year, after huh. the third year, he can yeah. sign articles because of the period of th uh, five years of article. Yeah. yeah. And if he is in the three-year course, after the first year of uh, yeah. the, uh, passing the LLB exam, he can sign articles. When you sign articles, means you will engage yourself with a solicitor who has a minimum of five years of practice as a solicitor. And you are bound with that solicitor to work with him or her for a period of five years after uh, for a period of three years after which you can appear for your solicitor's exam. The solicitor's exam. So therefore, firstly, you are getting training, which unfortunately today students don't want. Unfortunately, all of them want to do internships, which happen one month, one year, one month, two months. Yeah. Trust me, they learn nothing. Yeah, yeah. I have interviewed lots of students and when you see in their CV, they'll have written a huge, long two-page, three-page CV. You ask them something basic on anything that they have written. Most, Some of them, of course, are very intelligent and have worked really hard and know what they are writing. But most of them will say, oh, but we assisted the senior. We assisted the senior associate in the matter. Or we associate... 
engaged with the junior associate. They have done nothing mainly on their own. Mainly their work is research. And unfortunately, they do not learn what an article clerk learns. An article clerk, just by the fact that that article clerk is there for a period of two and a half years at least, because they take around six months of study leave, they get exposure of not only working when they are still students, but also exposure which they get for almost six months to 10 months after they become lawyers. So they get exposure of appearing in matters, of engaging with councils directly, of drafting, of, you know, just the fact engaging that engaging with clients, years, your senior yeah, gets comfortable. Yeah. And if you're good at your work and you're diligent and hardworking, you will get all the exposure that the yeah. can give you. Which unfortunately today children don't want to do. Students are and also one thing about the solicitor's exam is that because of the nature of the exam and the subjects that are covered, it makes your basics extremely strong. Because you're, it's a very difficult exam to uh, to pass. And no, the passing rate is what, 4%, 2%, I don't know, very less. Uh, I wouldn't go into percentages because I've never worked it out. This time we had 10 people passing. Oh dear. 100 and odd uh, appearing. So uh, yes, it is an artist exam. It requires dedicated study. But in my, the year in which I appeared, five fast passed in the first attempt. Oh, wow. So uh, it's not that it is not doable. You have to know how to study. You have to study in the correct manner and study with dedication. And then yeah. it's possible to pass it. Yeah. But the point I was trying to make is that uh, it makes your basics very strong. So if there are law students listening in, because some of the questions also that I have received in the past is, should I do, should I sign up with a solicitor? Should I do my articleship? And I think the answer really lies in what is it that you want to do after? Like I think for... To want a career in litigation, uh, signing up with a solicitor is extremely useful, I think. I think uh, even Jenna, even if you don't want a career in litigation. Yeah, that's true. Signing up with her uh, solicitor, solicitor makes is, a lot of sense. Yeah. Because solicitors now don't do only litigation. That's we true. We do a lot of property work. We do corporate stuff. So they get a wide variety. In yeah. Fact, uh, acts which are covered in the exam, modern commercial law covers SEBI and... Uh, PMLA and all kinds of new laws. You, you may want to say what is prevention of money laundering. Like you may want to say what that is. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean, yeah, but all of the new age acts, let's just say that. I don't know whether cyber law and all of that is included because no, that is yet. the that is the buzzword. Everybody wants to do metaverse law and cryptocurrency law. Other than the spelling, I don't know anything else about it, but that's what they want to do. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, because uh, your basics become really, really strong. And at the end of the day, whichever fancy stream of the law you want to get into, principles are the same. If you know your contract law principles and your uh, constitutional law principles and your procedural principles to an extent, evidence law, evidence act principles, then you can pretty much do any stream of law. And I think this is one thing that people, the younger generation... Not that I am old, but there are many people younger than me today and they don't seem to understand that uh, you need to focus on basics and which is why it's hugely useful to sign up with a solicitor. Uh, another question that I get very often from the community who writes back is, what is the monetary advantage? 
so what like how because that's all that people want to know nowadays how does how will it make me more marketable that i am a solicitor uh, or not that's a difficult one i don't know the answer to that but yes i would in the olden days yes partners of firms could be only solicitors but with the various nlus the national law universities coming in now there are partners of law firms who are not solicitors a, a large number of them may not be solicitors yet i mean yes. yeah so, so ultimately it's what how much knowledge you have is what makes you marketable and the more knowledge that you have initially it definitely makes you far more marketable than just being a law graduate but uh, yes, if for that one year of extra studying that you do you're losing out uh, yeah, you get a stipend yeah you get a very a uh, very humble stipend compared to the salaries that no, we are giving not necessarily not necessarily Achha. now don't give humble stipend to article clerks value to so that 3500 and 5000 is all gone i think every uh, solicitor has their own uh, decision on that uh, there is nothing that the incorporate law society prescribes this is the minimum stipend you get but uh, so for us for example we do not give minimum stipend we give what we think is reasonable which we increase as the article clerk progresses and the time that they are with us and mm. once they become lawyers they mm. get substantially more mm. it may not be comparable to uh, what maybe a large firm would give to a associate who's just passed out yeah But, so i think uh, i think the question is more in that you know from that perspective because uh today the, you know the salaries that people are getting are fairly transparent to a, to a large extent and people seem to know it i did i didn't know what my neighbor was getting but apparently a lot of people know what salaries people are getting uh and this is a question i get asked also uh so if i if i do my solicitors will i get paid more i i personally don't like if i get two cvs which one is a solicitor one is not i would probably if they are both good in their uh, you know in the interview i would probably pay more to the solicitor only because i feel like their training has been more wholesome than uh, somebody else depending on their cv of course not subject to individual individuals but what would you do yeah probably the same answer yeah because ultimately you have gone through the rigors of the exam yeah will be exam unfortunately today most students don't study <sighs> and uh, especially when covid intervened yeah it has uh, the standard has slipped far further yeah so you have uh, students who will say when you ask them a question in interview they'll say ma'am we are covid batch as if that's an answer to everything Oh. yeah it is a fact okay because there were uh, sitting at home you had access to various things which sitting in an examination hall you did not have access to oh yeah true so there are very I... few who have been diligent through the covid years and when actually study yeah like... suppose it was hard also i mean it's difficult to imagine the uh... I I I can't even imagine studying through COVID, like being a student through that and doing all your lectures. Yeah, through uh, 
Zoom or whatever, Google Meet and all that, not seeing your peers and all. So I don't know. Uh, Farzana, who would you think, just to close out the solicitors bit, who would you think, what kind of students would you think should, should sign up their articles? For sure. I think whichever student actually wants to continue in law practice should sign. And it doesn't matter if it's litigation, if it's counsel practice, if it is wherever you want to be, even if you want to be an in-house counsel. I think having a solicitor's background for an in-house counsel, having been an in-house counsel for a reasonable long, reasonably long amount of time is very useful. Not that I'm a solicitor, but I'm just saying that it is incredibly useful because... Yeah, because you learn the workings of the department. Also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I worked in a solicitor's firm, thanks to you. So I had a reasonable idea, but uh, I think it's incredibly useful to actually have. And I agree with you that if you're serious about the profession and uh, you can forgo your salary for the first year, the salary as in what you may get outside, then you must uh, sign your articles. I think it's useful. Um. Because these internships don't work. The problem is that the Bar Council now has kind of prescribed saying that you have to uh, attend five hours of law college. So it becomes a bit of a challenge for students who have law colleges outside okay. Bombay or, you know, huh. which are, say, for example, the Maharashtra Law University. So uh, it becomes very difficult. Like I've gone for a lecture there and they told me that, you know, this what you're telling us about articles sounds very good it uh it's much better than what my children do as interns but the problem is that bar council comes and checks and uh, wants Achha. us to have lectures of five hours each day Achha. and they are based in Pawai. so if a student finishes at 12 even if they start their lectures at seven in the morning and finish by 12 12 30 the student would be able to land up in the solicitor's office only in the afternoon half but it's something which can be looked at, can be worked at with the senior. I think it's still something which is in their interest to do. Which yeah, but again, this... Today, what I see... Sorry. Today, what I see is basically that kids... And I'm calling them kids because I am old now. Okay? <laughs> and let me acknowledge that I am. So, uh, kids today want only big names on the CV. Yeah. Okay? feel that if they have these big names on the CV, it makes them more employable. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you may have big names in the CV, but you don't know anything that you have done. At some level, somebody is going to realize that you have no knowledge. Yeah. So I think they should get serious about actually gaining knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can, I have a huge, I can do a whole conversation on big names on the CV, but it is absolutely not for a, for public consumption on the podcast, but uh, I can, I just, the only thing I can say is I agree with you completely. And if there are students listening, and I know that there are students listening, um, I would encourage them to follow Farzana's advice and go to a person whom you think you can learn from. Okay. Now I want to ask you, I mean, I, I, all your, all the questions I want to ask you about yourself, your practice and uh, tips for law students. I think I finished that part, but now if there are not law students, but general, you know, everyday lay people listening in on the podcast, uh, there are two things I wanted to want to ask you from their angle. Okay. The first is 
you do a wide variety of civil work in the sense was uh, legal work on the civil side and uh, you have been doing it for a long time so you have seen a lot of people in problems and you have helped a lot of people out of problems if you can you can say maybe three common mistakes that you see people make which with simple either with simple information or with uh, you know uh, there are simple plugs that they can put in their lives that would save them a lot of heartache and headache and money what is it that you would say generally i'm asking not particular to any one uh, practice area no so generally if you are in a dispute situation where you have to uh, file a litigation or defend huh. a litigation then first thing you should try and explore is whether there is a possibility of arriving at a, some kind of settlement because litigation let's face it is very very expensive yeah and, and long especially for a individual litigant however rich you are it starts pinching at some point in time yeah so if a settlement can be arrived at either with by talking directly or if it can be negotiated through a mediator or whatever or through lawyers if they are good lawyers on both sides they may assist clients to negotiate the difficulty that i find especially when it is if it's corporate litigation then of course the corporates are going to fight each other and that settlement will only happen when orders will come for and against it will yeah. not happen we know <laughs> we have seen we have faced it yeah but so uh, but those also ultimately get settled yeah yeah of so course the system yeah. today a final solution doesn't come for a long long length of time yeah. several years yeah and that is also subject to various appeals yeah so uh, corporate litigations also tend to get settled but they tend to run a longer course than individual but where individual litigations are concerned i find that especially if they are family litigations there's a lot of ego involved yeah and people don't want to settle at the initial stage saying oh that person did this to me and now i will teach him a lesson and i will not work out a settlement five years down the line believe me they will settle <laughs> and all the effort that you may as a as a good human being you will put in even though you are a lawyer and you will get deprived of fees if a settlement happens uh clients sometimes do not want to listen to so that i would say is when you are in a litigation situation try and keep your ego aside and try and be practical be practical take a practical even if you have to take a little less it's better than fighting a litigation because in the litigation cost you will tend to lose much much more yeah and to be honest the lawyers are the only ones who gain yes absolutely absolutely i agree with you secondly uh do not get misguided like be aware that or rather let me put it this way clients very often want to hear what they want to hear so if a client comes to you and you tell that client you don't have a case that client will say okay you don't believe in me i will change my lawyer and i'll go to a lawyer who will 
tell me, oh, yes, you have a very good case. Yeah. Ultimately, you may not get orders, but you have heard what you want to hear. And that is, you're not doing yourself any favors by doing that. You're just causing yourself harm. And lastly, uh, I would say, do not only go to lawyers because of the fees they charge. <laughs> Find out the ability of that lawyer. Find yeah. out whether that person will do your matter diligently, honestly, well, etc. So Farzana, I did say in my introduction that you're one of the most honest people that I have ever met. And I think your advice number two is testament to the fact because you're like, um, I can tell you that you don't have a case. I know that I'm not going to get the fees, but it is in your interest. I'm telling you, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. Uh, you don't have a case. So I agree with every single thing that you said. And you said it more from a litigation angle when people are already at a dispute level, you know, situation. What would you say for something, you know, for a dispute avoidance situation? For instance, I'll tell you that, you know, that I worked as a legal counsel in a company. And one of my, one of the struggles that we had was that our operations guys used to go and negotiate the contracts and they would send it to me, FYI and record, please. Like as if I'm a bank, like I'm a bank locker, you know, take it. So then you're thinking you've, you've negotiated, you've, there are liquidated damages. Nobody has seen it or, or whatever penalty for late payment. Let's just say that. And some of, the, sometimes the penalty is uh, not even what is legally allowed, like there's 2% per month or 3% per month. But you've agreed to all of that. You know, you've agreed to, you may have to go to the court and challenge it. And then that in my in my next Janamuni, it'll come. So then there's unnecessary uh, dispute that happens, which can could have been avoided if you had just sort of understood what these terms mean. And then either, you know, negotiated it down to a place where both of you agree or say that, no, I will not sign this, etc. So this is something that we had to struggle to do. And then we had to do a lot of training in-house to uh, make our own people aware of what is it that they were signing and so on. So this is one way that we could avoid at least some measure of disputes as we went on. So what are some of those kind of mistakes that you think can be avoided? Just like when you look at the case, you'll be like, why would this person do this? Why would they agree to this? You know, what, what has your experience in that? So at the time of the contract drafting only, you have to be careful. And if you are careful with your words and you negotiate your terms very clearly, then obviously disputes to a great extent can be reduced. Yeah. But if you are, you are interested in getting business and most people are, hmm. you are interested in getting business and you want to close the deal immediately, etc. Yeah. Et because you have those timelines. I wanted it as of yesterday. I wanted it as of day before yesterday, etc. Then you are going to make mistakes. You are going to allow things to be put into the contract, which you may not be 100% sure of. You may make overcommitments. Yeah. You may take overcommitments, knowing fully well that maybe your supplier cannot supply you the goods or whatever that you are yeah. into within that time frame. But you still want to push him in the hope that he does it. And then you want to enforce penalties if he doesn't. So... Uh, drafting our contract also is very important. Like, let's look at it from the scenario of a loan transaction. You go to a bank and you say, I want a loan. The bank will have a standardized document. Uh, though our today banks and NBFCs for large accounts do negotiate a few terms here and there. Yeah. Uh, 
but generally they have a standardized document. Yeah. And in the olden days, when there was litigation happening in the high court, bank litigation happened in the high court. Now it happened in the debt recovery tribunal. Yeah. One standard defense was, but I signed the document in blank. I yeah. was, uh, nothing was filled up. The bank officer told me to sign, I signed. So we had a judge at that time, Justice Pense, who uh, was very, very uh, quick. He would read his papers. He was extremely good. The only question he would ask the person who was the borrower and who was the defendant in the case is, you got the money, didn't you? Once you got the money, you have to pay it back. Don't tell me you signed a document in blank or otherwise. Yeah. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. That then the bank may put in a 10% interest or a 12% interest. You wanted the money you signed. Yeah. Be careful when you sign the document. Yeah. Read it. Understand it. Negotiate the terms. Yeah. And thereafter... Come and on. if you don't understand, ask someone. Like ask, go search for the daily lawyer and then ask. No, I'm joking. Yeah, but... No, yeah. absolutely. Because yeah. there are terms, there's so much legalese in these documents that yeah. it is difficult for a normal lay person to understand. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes and the legalese is to the level that even lawyers don't Yeah, exactly. Understand. Like loan documents and all, you feel like crying. But anyway, um, my last question to close out this seg section is uh, just like I asked you in general, three things that you think three mistakes that you've seen people make. Uh, since you do a lot of testamentary work, what are, according to you, three things that a person must include in his or her will? Like if you have to say, these three things for sure must be there in your will. You must have executors named who you trust. Who you trust will do so what We'll just want. explain what an executor is because he or she, whoever is the executor, is the one who's in charge of actually making sure that everything that you write in the will actually happens in the way that you write in the will. And if there is a probate involved, then he or she has to uh, apply to the high court and, and you know, whatever, uh, take charge of the probate proceedings, let's just say, for, for that particular will. So he or she is a really important person when it comes to the will. Huh? So you must have an executor. Why? Why is it? You know who you are entrusting your estate to? who will take care of your estate, who will collect it, who will administer it, who will basically follow your wishes. Yeah. And in the bargain, not eat up the money. Huh. So you have to have somebody you trust. Uh, secondly, you must be clear in what bequests you're making. Hmm. So who are you going to give your estate to? You must be very specific. Are you giving, are you dividing it percentage-wise? Are you giving lump sum amounts, what exactly do you want to do? It is not necessary to specify what is what you're holding, what are your movables and immovables, though I prefer to specify yeah. what immovables are yeah, held by an individual. Yeah. Movables keep changing. Movables yeah. are land, flats, property. There's not constantly, you don't keep selling it every, you won't churn it yeah. every six months. Yeah. It has shares and mutual funds and fixed yeah. deposits. And even cash, bank, bank yeah. balances. So those you can yeah. mention in general terms. Yeah. Uh, so you must kind of be very clear as to how, who yeah. has to get what yeah. in of your estate. And uh, you must provide generally a residuary clause, yeah. which should cover the fact that if there's anything which is found later which is not yours 
and which is not specified it is still include which is yours rather yeah. than not which is not yours which you probably not specified in the yes, in the yes. current will where does the residue go yeah who does it go and yeah. how yeah and of course what i mentioned earlier if an executor is also a beneficiary yeah, under the will you must provide that the beneficiary will get the bequest regardless of whether or not he proves the will unless of course, the professional executor like a lawyer or a chartered yeah. accountant where he's appointed only for, he's being paid to render services. Yeah. And in that case, then obviously, if he does not prove the will, he doesn't get the bequest. Yeah. Otherwise, you must provide for that. Yeah. And your attesting witnesses must see you signing or get acknowledgement from you saying that they have actually seen you signing or received an acknowledgement that this is your signature. Yeah. We had a very interesting testamentary litigation where a will was challenged on the basis that the attesting witnesses refused to give affidavits. Okay. Yeah. The facts were that uh, the, uh, uh, the spouse of the testator went to the one attesting witness who was his lawyer and said, this is my husband's will, sign it. So the lawyer knew the husband. So he called him up and said, did I, did, have you signed this will? He was told, yes, I have signed this will. So he signed. Then the spouse said, now I need another attesting will. So the lawyer called up his friend, who was a doctor, and said, could you sign this will? And all this was done in good faith because they never expected the will to be challenged. And the doctor, without knowing the deceased or the testator, signed a will as the second attesting witness. When the when the deceased died, when the testator died, the spouse wanted an attesting affidavit of attesting witness. The lawyer said, I'll make an affidavit, but I will say specifically what has happened. I'm not going to say that the testator came in my office and signed. And then that became a whole litigation and ultimately it was held that though an acknowledgement was given, the second attesting witness had signed without getting an acknowledgement from the testator himself and therefore the will was disproved. And that is all still pending an appeal. Oh God. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it can be a, a be long... Careful when you yeah. execute a will. Yeah, of course. See, this is why I like speaking to Farzana because she has so much of experience. She keeps saying things which are very useful. I hope whoever is listening finds it useful as well. Now, this is the end of our main section. Okay. And the last chota section is something I do for myself because I love listening to the answers. So it's called five, four, three, two, ones. So five of something, four of something, three of something like that. So um, five productivity tips that you have. It can be anything. It can be even like if you use apps. I can't imagine you using apps at all, but uh, five productivity tips. See, one thing I find and I tell all my juniors is whenever you read a brief, making a list of dates is absolutely important. Whether it's a litigation matter or property matter where you're going to prepare the sale deed, you need to know your list of dates and you need to know the flow carefully. And if you do that, your work becomes that much simpler when you're drafting. Otherwise, you're just hunting for papers. You have to be more organized. And that is basically what I would say. And one thing that I would say for drafting 
is something my senior to always told me. He used to, in my initial years, just I would give him a draft and he would call back, call me and tell me, call the steno. And then he would redictate my whole draft. And he would actually shout at me and say, Fadana, your sentence starts at line one of page one and ends at line 20 of page one. You need to make shorter sentences. Making shorter sentences makes the drafting clearer. Whatever it is, whether it's litigation, non-litigation, whatever it is, it definitely makes the drafting clearer. Your thoughts are more clear. So other than making a list of dates, when I draft, I also like to make a little sketch of how I propose to go about my draft, which point will come first, which point will come second, a general outline so that it becomes clearer and becomes easier to draft. So I think I can give you only tips. I can't think of anything else. No, but what about you writing everything with your, that, uh, those uh, pay, uh your calendar which you had like individual papers that you stack and then you go back in your diary like three years your diary yeah which you have in your on your That's desk my, uh, it's like a, a diary like a diary ha huh, so it's those diary, are also productive calendar huh, so those are also productivity tips like write everything down blah 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 like that beyond time to-do list and i cancel okay. it up huh so you can say that also okay so a to-do list of what you will, uh, what is the pending work, huh. what you need to do. And yes, one thing I truly believe in is clients do tend to put a lot of pressure and they will say, oh, can't you do this by this evening? And, uh, oh, but so-and-so will be able to do it for us. And if you say yes, then you're not going to be able to give the same kind of product if it requires more work. So... Maybe it is the fact that I've been around for some time and therefore I can kind of tell a client, no, I can't do it by this time. I will do it only on XYZ and give it to you by XYZ day. But then if I've given a timeline to a client and said that, look, this thing of yours, I'll do it by Friday. I will do anything to see that I do it by Friday. I will not breach that deadline. Yeah. That Friday means 12 midnight. Yeah, <laughs> but I know, I know because you have been up all night so many times, and you've managed family crisis and ill health of your ill health, ill health of family members, even of pets, uh, and managed to work through that. So I can attest to this, um, this quality of Arzana's. Okay, now four books that you would recommend anyone should read it could be anything but not okay you can say your history books also Chaliga. no i i can't recommend any books because when i'm not doing my law reading i on holidays <laughs> i do a lot of light reading i don't think it is uh, appropriate I for a podcast I know what, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but no these days i do do much uh, other kind of fiction reading which is <laughs> different from what we used to do together but no, but anything like, I don't know, Ayn Rand's Fountainhead or some, like, something that sounds intelligent. Also, like. Just now I read uh, the entire series by Alex Rutherford on the Mughals. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, because I'm interested. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I found it very, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, William Darenpil is course. another author. Who, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is something I enjoy. Then. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say, it depends. If you are interested in that kind of stuff, it makes sense. Yeah. So one of my article clerks is just now started reading the Alex Rutherford books. Huh. Because I said I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it is very nice. So uh, yeah, 
I saw what... the movie uh, Six Years in Tibet and I started reading that. Acha, it's a book, is it? That, yeah, oh. I the book. Acha. So uh, I read that and I found it really interesting to read. So, yeah. and one more, you've come with three. We are so close. You know, I'll give you ideas of what are the best-selling books of our podcast. Atomic Habits by James Clear, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. They they will get Lifetime Achievement Award in the podcast because every other guest is... uh, A very diligent guest. Yeah. I'm not. (laughs) Or even, uh, you know, autobiographies of great lawyers. Like... No. No. I see enough of... Them every day. I'd rather read something other than the law. Yeah, other than the law. One last, you're very close. Like, it can be older books also, which like, no, like Catch-22 or, yeah, I don't So all the Jeffrey Archer's, Irving Wallace. Yeah, the older ones, not the newer ones. The newer ones are quite rubbish. I've gone through all most of them. Yeah. Like the, not the not a penny more, not a penny less, that, era was much better than now it's all rubbish i mean at least i find it rubbish i can't read them but those are interesting yeah they are okay good congratulations you came to thank you amazing okay three you've already said this in many ways in and through your other podcasts but three tips that you have for young lawyers or law students if you have to just concise uh you know put everything together everything that you said three tips be diligent about your studies because what you learn in your law is your basics. And if you don't know your basics going forward, it will be very, yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Initial years, do not look for money. Look at gaining knowledge. Yeah. Because the money will be there. If you have the knowledge, it will yeah. come. Yeah. And uh, what else? do longer internships. Do articles, don't do internships. Yeah. But that is a hyper local thing. No, it's only for Bombay. I think what about people from they do yeah. long internships? Huh. You know, yeah. Do, do a minimum of six months. Yeah. Or if at least three months. Yeah. Etc. Because we have listeners. Because they are situated not in cities. Yeah. And they are like Jindal is situated so many kilometers away from Delhi. It's not possible. Yeah. Students on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah. So, very often, I find that some of these students, after they pass their law, land up doing long term internships. Oh, is it? Or they do, you know, like I know of somebody who is now doing uh, the Supreme Court offers uh, for six months at a time or whatever. Yeah. So, I think they're called something else judicial clerkship, no? Clerkships, yeah. Yeah. So, because we have students from like really, uh, you know, we had students from Jalgaon and all writing in, and those are the students who write in more than people from any of the bigger metros, as we know. So then, for them, they are really keen to know that you know what should I do? How should I approach my law? How should should I do an LLM? Should I not do an LLM? All these kind of questions are the ones that are there. At least these are the uh, questions that I have got through the podcast okay two life lessons that you have learned in your life not law now anything could be i would say to be honest to your profession and to be honest to yourself 
is something which is uh, possibly the most important thing for me. Yeah, work is and worship, Farzana, which you used to tell all of us. <laughs> that is true. But I should be able to sleep yeah. without feeling that I have done something wrong in my profession mm. or in my life. Yeah. Uh, of course, we all make lots of mistakes and every day is a mm. learning uh, part. Yeah. But, uh, as far as possible, to try and... It sounds very pompous, but... No, no. One must try and... Yeah. Whatever one can to the best of one's ability. Of course. And the second life lesson. To find a work-life balance. Hmm. Which is a difficult one. Yeah. So sacrifices. Yeah. Either on the work front or the home front. There has to be a balance because you yeah. can't ignore one and correct concentrate only on the other. Yeah. Then there'll be lots of more problems than yeah. otherwise have. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. And in just at on the heels of women's day, this is a very useful uh very useful life lesson okay and the last question of the podcast is what is the biggest or the best piece of advice that you have received like somebody else has told you huh? like life lesson is what you have learned advice is somebody has told you in the best piece of advice that you have received so far what my professor said do law ah, yeah my entire career is yes of course yeah of course such a nice professor Absolutely. okay Thank you so much, Farzana. We, you were very generous with your time. We went way over, unfortunately, than what I promised you. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. And for all the things that you said, I'm really excited that I finally got to do the podcast with you. Thank you so much, Jenna. It's been, a, as always, a pleasure. You yes. are absolutely a live wire. So it's thank you. So sweet. Thank you.